three, two, one. Hey everybody, welcome back to System and Soul. Chris and Benj with you today, and uh, we're excited today. We we got a guy who really has studied pressure, uh, all kinds of pressure, um, sports, business, and uh, he's written this really really cool book, um, The Power of Pressure. His name is Dave Jensen. He's the CEO of Third Factor, uh, second-generation entrepreneur, and an author of The Power of Pressure. Dane, welcome to System and Soul. Hey, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So, Dane, second generation. So let's just start there, right? Tell us, tell us a little bit about, um, about Third Factor. Yeah, so, you know, Third Factor, we're kind of this interdisciplinary leadership lab um, I, I always talk about what we do is basically being a cross-pollination engine. So we, you know, we kind of operate at the intersection of all these different environments where people are under a lot of pressure and they have to perform. And we try to figure out what we can all learn from each other. Um, you know, so we actually got our start as an organization. You mentioned second generation. So it was founded by my parents. Uh, my dad, you know, had a PhD in sports psychology. My mom was a clinical psychologist. And, and they were really working in the world of elite sport. Um, you know, it was kind of the the days when you know sports psychology was a bit of a dark art uh, in the in the 70s and 80s. Nobody really knew what they were doing back there. It was kind of like this electric shock therapy, and, uh, you know, psychoanalysis, and you know. So they were, uh, you know, my dad in particular was was among the kind of first crew to really bring it, you know, out of the, the the kind of back room and into being more of a science. You know, how do you perform under pressure? And and this was a topic that you know, as you know, time ticked forward into the kind of early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, people in organizations started picking up the phone and calling them and saying like, hey, the stuff you're doing with elite athletes to help them perform an international competition, you know, we have pressure too. We got to give big sales pitches. We got to, you know, deliver against tight timelines. You know, could this stuff help us? And that was really where the business got formed was recognizing that, you know, pressure is a universal human experience and it's a pretty fundamentally human one, right? Our heart rate yeah. increases, our, our breathing gets quicker. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, sports, a great R&D lab. I, I now talk about what we do more as we, we try to learn from everybody. We talk to people in business. We talk to people in the military and sport and academia and just figure out what are the universal things that we can learn about pressure and performance. Yeah. So what are some of those biggest takeaways? Like to, if you had to distill all of your years of learnings from each other <laughs> down into a few critical things, like what are what does it come down to? Man, Ben, you start with the, you don't work your way up. It's no, like, let's hear I'm it, not, right? What's the that. big stuff? What do we need to know? All right. So I think this is kind of what the mission of the book was, to be totally honest, was like, okay, we've been looking at this for 30 years. Um, what are some of the patterns that have emerged? And I, I kind of tackled this in, a, in a, a slightly, well, I think anyways, a slightly interesting way, which is, you know, in addition to the, the years of experience that we had, I kind of stumbled on this, um, this question that opened a lot of doors for me. And it was this question, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? And I started asking this thing kind of informally. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of teaching and speaking, so it was a great icebreaker uh, on a break or around a table. But what I started to immediately realize is like, no matter who you ask this question of, 
whether it's an elite athlete, it's, you know, someone in the military, it's just a regular manager, it's a busy parent, like, there's a great story on the other side of this question. And I, I suspect the two of you, you know, the second I kind of say, what's the most pressure you've ever been under, your brain starts going a little bit, right? Okay, well, you know, what is that moment? And, and so I started asking this to as many people as I could, I started following it up and saying, well, what made it, you know, so high pressure? What did you do? Did that help? Did that hurt? What did other people do? Did that help? Did that hurt? So I, I just started to try to unpack it a little bit. And so I think your question around, what, what, you know, what have you learned? Like, what are the patterns? Um, I learned first that initially when you start asking this thing, you actually don't think there are any patterns. So right off the jump, I was kind of like, holy crap. Like, you know, the experiences that people come back with are so different. It, they, you know, it, it, it would actually be impossible for them to be more different. Like you get the classic stuff, right? So you get the, hey, I had to give a speech in front of a thousand people. But you get the stuff that's like, you know, I was on stage and the person who was presenting started choking and came walking towards me, making the choking gesture. And I had to perform life-saving surgery in front of, you know, a conference of people. Or I had a guy who said, you know, I, I, I was swimming in the ocean and I suddenly realized that I was too far from shore to get back and the tide was going out. Or, you know, I had a really demanding job and my mom got cancer and I had to be the one in the hospital with her, you know, providing end-of-life care while holding down a job. So you know, initially I was kind of like, wow, you know, what people define as pressure is so broad um, and so diverse and distinct that it's going to be a little bit hard to do this. But the more you start asking it, the more you do start to go, okay, amidst all of this vast diversity, there are actually some things that are pretty similar across high pressure situations. Um, and I think the three things that, that for me are important for us to talk about are importance, uncertainty, and volume. And, and I'll give you like the high level definition of this. And then I will, I promise I will stop talking at some point and, and uh, we'll, we'll have a dialogue. But, but the three, you know, so regardless of the situation, people don't feel pressure if the outcome isn't important. So that's the first thing that has to be there for, for pressure is this, this has to matter to me in some capacity. If it doesn't, I'm not going to feel pressure. But importance on its own is not enough to create pressure. The, the second thing is uncertainty. Because no matter how important something is to me, if I know exactly how it's going to go, there's not pressure there. You know, pressure exists at the intersection of the outcome of this is important to me, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. And then the third piece is volume, which is there's always some component of like, there's just a lot, uh, you know, a lot of tasks, decisions, distractions that surround the important, uncertain, you know, moments that we find ourselves in. Uh, and so all the tools around pressure for me relate back to those three things. That's what causes pressure. If we can learn to manage those three things, we can get at the good stuff under pressure. So that's your lens. It's almost your filter when you're, when you're confronted with a, whether it's yourself or a client or, you know, whoever you're working with, you're going to say, Hey, let's, let's not think about pressure. Let's break it down into these three elements that create pressure. And then we can learn to deal with that. Is that. Yeah, that, that's, you got it. Bang on. All right. So my curiosity is, is high. Let's break those down. Start with importance. How do we deal with importance of pressure? Yeah. So importance is a bit of a microcosm for all three, which is, you know, once you start to dig into these things, what you realize is that, you know, just like pressure itself is a double-edged sword, you know, like pressure is energy pressure, you know, can be hugely beneficial. Uh, and at the same time, pressure, you know, untethered over time is profoundly bad for people. It, you know, it leads to burnout and stress leave and all that terrible stuff. It, you know, so pressure itself is a double-edged sword. 
And then all three of these things, importance, uncertainty, and volume, they're like double agents in and of themselves. They can be really helpful, but they can also be really, really hurtful. Mm -hmm. And so importance is a great microcosm of that, which is, you know, when we are going through the grind, the long haul of pressure. So, you know, think about the example of the, you know, the woman who had to care for her mother at end of life while holding down a demanding job. Think about what lots of us have gone through over the past 20 months, where it's not like an acute pressure moment, like, you know, a big speech or a job interview or something. It's just like this unrelenting grind of, of volume and importance and uncertainty. In those periods, our main job, the intervention is to really clear a line of sight to importance. Right? How close can I pull importance? How clear a picture do I have of how this period is helping me grow? How enduring this pressure is benefiting the people around me, my family, society, my business, the team? And how is this pressure bringing me closer to other people? Right? We need to really clearly see how those grind periods either are strengthening us helping us make a contribution or connecting us to other people. And, and we need to be really conscious. This is why gratitude practice is so important when we're going through the grind. We've got to consciously get importance as close to us as we can so we don't lose sight of it because that's where the energy and the perseverance comes through over the long haul. When you, on the other hand, tip over into what I talk about as peak pressure moments. So these are things like you know, an Olympic final or a really big you know, meeting that you have to nail. It's actually the other issue, right? Because when we're going into those situations, importance gets completely overwhelming, right? Often all we can think about is like, oh my God, this is so important. If I screw this up, like, you know, everybody's going to know I'm a fraud. My life's going to be a failure. I'm going to you know, lose the deal. The business is going to go bankrupt, right? We get so oriented on how important these situations are that that's when it starts to compromise importance or sorry, compromise performance. And so our task, the intervention in those moments is we actually want to push importance away. You know, we want to orient on what's not at stake in this situation. Yes. Like what are the things that are important to me that will not change regardless of the outcome uh, of this moment or of this, you know, this performance. So it, it's this weird kind of push and pull where we're, when we're going through pressure over the long haul, get it as close as we can. When we flip into those peak performance moments, now we got to see importance in perspective. It's actually about stepping back and, you know, getting some distance from importance. Hey, podcast listeners, Chris White here. I want to challenge you with something today. Now, this might sting a little bit. You ready? All right, here it is. Are you limiting your capacity as a leader? We know you're experienced in the world of business, entrepreneurship, and leadership development. We know you're smart, intentional, business-savvy folks. But are you playing too small? One of the greatest steps you can take after years of leading a company or organization is to become a coach for other businesses. I've been a business coach for over 20 years after a 20-year corporate career, and I'm here to tell you, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It is the most rewarding and gratifying thing that I have ever done in my career. And this is also why Benj Miller and I created System & Soul. We're training coaches right now to help small businesses everywhere experience breakthrough in both the system and the soul side of their business. If you're ready to expand your capacity and create impact like never before, then let's go. Get on my calendar, let's book a call, and I'm happy to introduce you to System and Soul. For more information, visit systemandsoul.com forward slash coach and set up your phone call today.
All right, uncertainty. If I if I had to say one of the three of these is probably my kryptonite, it's probably the uncertainty. So what do we do with yeah. uncertainty? Yeah, and I and I don't think you're alone, right? I mean, you, you know, we're we're just not built for uncertainty. We, you know, that's not how our ancestors were successful and procreated. That, you know, it was not by seeking out uncertainty, it was by seeking out certainty. So I, you know, I just think that's something that as human beings, we're not really very good at handling. So, you know, again. I think that this notion of the tension that existed with importance where we want importance, but if it gets you know, too big, it starts to become overwhelming. I think it's the same is true with uncertainty, right? You know, when you're reading a good book or watching a good movie, the uncertainty is what makes it enjoyable, right? Yeah. If somebody ruins the ending for you, it's like, ah, oh, crap. Like, you know, why, would, why am I even going to watch this thing? You know, and then at some point, uncertainty hits a point where it's like, okay, this is no longer enjoyable anymore. This is now excruciating. Um, and so, you know, managing uncertainty is this combination of two almost seemingly counter abilities. So the first is direct action. And in particular, when we are in those peak pressure moments again, right, you go back to the Olympic final, the, you know, whatever your version of that is, that is the dominant skill in uncertainty, which is identify the one thing that you can do to exert control and do that as quickly as possible. Because the second you start to exert control and make progress, that's when the pressure from uncertainty starts to abate a little bit. And, mm. and we start to build our sense of what, you know, Albert Bindura at Stanford is called self-efficacy, right? We start to see that we're making progress, we exert control, and things start to open up a little bit for us. Um, the counterpoint to that is because direct action is so effective in peak pressure moments, what I've found is that high performers can often get addicted to direct action, right? It's like, I see uncertainty and I act on it. I see uncertainty and I act on it. And actually that tendency over the long haul is quite counterproductive because if we try to act on and tame all of the uncertainty that we face over the long haul, it just creates a sense of helplessness, which actually reinforces pressure. And so the countervailing skill is, yes, I have to, you know, take direct, I, I call this finding my serve, uh, which is an homage to Martin Reeder, a beach volleyball player who, who talked about, you know, when you're playing beach volleyball, the only thing that you truly control is your serve. And so you got to find your serve. That to me is such a great metaphor for direct action. You got to find your serve. But once you're into the rally, you actually have to cultivate and, and, and actually work on this ability to embrace uncertainty. Right to get comfortable with the fact that you know you are en route to things that you cannot control, uh, and cannot tame and cannot predict. And I think the critical skill there is this acceptance of a lack of control, while at the same time being able to get to a place where you firmly and honestly believe that things will work out as they should in the end. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what separates the people who can embrace uncertainty from the people who cannot get to the place where they embrace uncertainty it is the people who are good at embracing uncertainty. It's not that they are delusional. They haven't got to the place where they go, yeah, everything's going to work out exactly as I expected. And it's going to you know, unfold just like the script I've written in my head. But yeah. they get to a place where they go, things are going to work out as they should, even if I don't know exactly what that means yet. Yeah. I'm so and getting to that place, that's where uncertainty starts to become a little bit more bearable. I'm so reminded of the serenity prayer that just says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because I, th this is one that we, I think we could talk about for a long time, because it, this notion of what I can and can't control, I think this is a real 
matter of perspective. And, you know, again, when you talk about high performers, it's like you're kind of caught between the Stoics who are saying, you know, don't try to change the world, change yourself to adapt to the world. And then on the other hand, you have like Apple and Steve Jobs who are saying like, no, don't accept the universe. That it is. You know, like make a dent, like you can change the universe. And so I do think, you know, the serenity prayer is super helpful and it's incredible wisdom. I think where people struggle a little bit is like, okay, how do I determine whether I'm accepting something I can't change or I'm just giving up and ab abdicating when I should be trying to make a dent in the universe? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that judgment call is a very difficult decision to make. And, and where I kind of come back on it is, you know, we've got to be honest with ourselves around how much energy am I willing to exert in service of trying to change this thing? How deep right. into the uncertainty zone am I willing to go? What is the cost that I'm willing to pay? Because there are only few things in this world that we truly cannot influence or change, right? That are 100% beyond our control. You look at the things that people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and others have accomplished, right? These are people who tackled things that other people said, you cannot control that, you cannot influence it. And they, they just refuse to accept it. And it came at the ultimate personal cost, right? That yeah. they decided this is a price that I'm willing to pay. This is a cost that I'm willing to carry. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, that that ability to kind of go in eyes open and aware and determine what are the things that I am willing to invest in to move and what are the things where I need to accept that I, I, I just need to embrace the uncertainty inherent here. Right. Pick your battles, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Volume. Yeah, volume, you know, everyone's favorite. Um, and, and I do think, you know, for a lot of people, as uncomfortable as uncertainty is, what I've been hearing certainly for the last year is it's volume that is literally burying people. Uh, you know, there's just been so much over the past 18 months. The pace has accelerated so greatly. Uh, you know, just in my house today, you know, our four-year-old has a runny nose, so he's home from kindergarten. And that's, you know, that's an additional layer of volume that my wife and I have to juggle in the, you know, in the midst of everything else. I, and I think that, you know, the thing that I've observed is that when volume is what's creating pressure for people, the default skill that people tend to turn to is time management. They go, okay, I got a lot to do. I got to, you know, make sure that I become more efficient so I can handle all this. And the challenge with this is that time management is a trap. It's a trap, right? Because what happens to people who get really good at time management? Do they get more volume or less volume? They get more volume, right? Time management, getting really good at time management is a great way to accrue more volume. It's like you free up an hour on your calendar. It's like, oh, thank God. You know, immediately, boom, like calendar invite. Oh. It's like you got a free hour there. Like, can you join our kickoff? You know, I talk about, it's like digging a hole at the beach, right? The bigger the hole you dig, the more the water is going to kind of rush in to, to fill it. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I think, listen, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, crap all over time management. It's, it's a useful productivity tool. It, it, it's an incredibly important productivity tool, but it's not the solution to pressure. And so when it comes to the pressure from volume, you really have to go at the root causes, right? What creates volume for us? It's the volume of tasks. It's the volume of decisions. It's the volume of distractions. And I think you need to have a plan in place for how am I going to cut these things off at the root and tame the inputs as opposed to just accommodating them, you know, by becoming more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, you know, we start to get into things like, you know, decisions. So, to, I mean, you know, take decisions as a starting point. I think that's been one of the things that has really ramped up pressure on people over the past year and a half is things that did not require a decision two years ago 
now require decisions made with tremendous uncertainty. Like, okay, is it safe to send my kid to school today or should we be keeping them home? You know, it, 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 am I good to get on a plane and, you know, take an international trip or, you know, is it still too, you know, all of these things that were just automatic two years ago, they now require cognitive load. They, they create uh, 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 pressure and, and use, you know, capacity. And so in that environment, my thing to people is, well, the more decisions that you can replace with absolute principles, the better off you are. Because again, if we just try to accommodate the decisions, it doesn't really work. And so one of my, one of my pieces of coaching to folks is take a look at the decisions that you're having to make and identify, are there any decisions that kind of fit a pattern where you would be better served by having an absolute principle? Mm. And the example I'll often use, because uh, it's far enough afield from the business world, is the, the science of weight loss. You know, if you look at the science of weight loss, it is actually much easier to say, I'm not going to eat after 8 p.m. than it is to say, I'm going to limit my snacking after 8 p.m. You know, because I'll limit my snacking after 8 p.m. This just opens up a world of decisions, right? It's like, okay, can I have this yogurt? Well, what about, what about these nuts? Like, well, can I have almonds or cashews? Or like, what if I've had some nuts? Like, can I have the yogurt now? Like, oh God, it's a big tub of yogurt. Like, is that, you know, all of a sudden I'm making all of these decisions, uh, you know, one by one. Versus I'm not going to eat after 8 p.m. Like no decisions. You know, it's one principle. It eliminates all the cognitive load that's required to make all those decisions. So that's one example for me of how we actually tame the volume as opposed to just kind of, you know, accommodate it. Yeah. It reminds me of some of the, you know, famous entrepreneurs, visionaries who wear the same clothes every single day because they exactly. have decision fatigue. It's one less decision they have to make. So in essence, you're saying that's reducing their load, their volume. Uh, that, that adds to pressure in their life. It's a way to alleviate exactly. pressure. Yeah, and I, that, that is a perfect example, right? We, we don't need to use cognitive load to decide what we're going to wear. Let's just put a principle in place and, and you know, cut that out entirely. Yeah, so cool. I love it. Where you, do you, um, I mean, I, you made a few examples kind of referencing the season that we're in with COVID. Um, if it's even possible to abstract ourselves from a world of COVID, do you think leaders... Um, are, are facing more pressure than they did, you know, 10 years ago, or is it just, that's just the, you know, that's the weight of leadership. So this is, yeah, this is a, this is a great conversation to have over a couple of drinks is, you know, so are we, you know, I go back to the three root causes, right? So I, you know, if pressure, which I believe is a function of importance, uncertainty, and volume, you kind of ask yourself, okay, are we dealing with fundamentally more important things now than we were 10 years ago? I don't know. The jury's kind of out on that one for me. Um, you know, certainly I think over the past 18 months, more people were dealing firsthand with more important things like their employment income, the health of their friends and family than, than typically you know, we were dealing with, so I think for this period, yeah, I think importance kind of went through the roof a little bit. If you look a little bigger picture, are we dealing with fundamentally more important things now than we were in the early part of the 20th century when there were two world wars and, you know, the advent of the nuclear bomb? I, like, I don't know, but, you know, so I, I, that one, it's kind of hard to handicap. I think uncertainty, you know, I do think uncertainty has been ramped up a little bit around just some of the fundamental underpinnings of, of the world, uh, you know, at least the way the world existed for the past kind of 60 to 70 years. But again, I think you could make a case that uncertainty has kind of always been with us. I think the one where it's a little bit more clear cut is actually volume. Um, I, you know, 
I don't think you can compare the volume that people were expected to carry 20 years ago to the volume that people carry now, just yeah. in terms of sheer information that we consume, yeah. the number of inputs that are open for people to reach us, you know, just to do this, this interview, I had to close Slack, <laughs> right. Signal, WhatsApp, yeah. Outlook, Teams, like literally I had to close like seven different apps so people couldn't ping me, you know, while we were doing this thing. And I just think that wasn't the case 20 years ago. So, so yeah, I, I think the jury's out for me a little bit on importance, uncertainty. It's a good debate. I think volume unequivocally is, is up. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, when I, I mean, look, we, we, we understand there are different kinds of pressures. We understand people can react differently to, to different types of pressures. And, you know, I, that leads me down the road. Well, you know, gosh, is the pressure any different today than the pressure my parents had, you know, raising a family of eight and building two companies? I mean, there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I wonder if, I wonder if there is, um, we are carrying real weight for artificial pressure because as you, as you were listing all three of those, I, I kept going my, in the, in my mind, I just kept seeing these, you know, 24 hour news cycles going and they're, they, they make their money off feeding us the importance of a million different things around the globe that really don't affect me. If I don't yes. watch it, I don't know about it. It has zero effect on me, but oh, yeah. we are now in everybody else's important problems they're all uncertain and the sheer volume from, you know, all of those inputs is, can be maddening. And, and I don't wonder if, you know, the, the thing that I would agree with you about, you know, maybe not the first two, but, but yes, the third one and either the third one's so big or maybe um, just the mass amount of inputs are, are hitting all three of these, but you got to think, you know, people aren't handling pressure well anymore. And yeah, well, and I, I want to pick up on what you said, because I think the, um, and this is actually, this is a chapter that I ended up cutting out of the book, but, but I, I, you know, I could not agree with you more on importance, which is, okay, objectively, are we dealing with more important things than, you know, two massive global wars? Probably not. Um, subjectively, I, I think, you know, there is, um, you know, there is a, an entire ecosystem that is rooted in two things, which is importance inflation and minute timescales. And those two things together, which is, you know, we, we need to ramp up the perceived importance of events because that's what gets people to pay attention to them. And, right. and you know, that's our right. currency is, is people's attention. And so it's like, you know, I get notifications on my lock screen, you know, when a study goes out that shows that avocados reduce cancer risk by 10%. It's like, oh my God, breaking news, right? Like, you know, so there is this importance inflation that gets attached to things that are not really that important. And at the same time, there is this collapse in time scales where I'm getting hit with stuff on such a frequent basis that every minor fluctuation can be tagged as important. So if you were to zoom out and look at it over the scale of a month or a year, you might go, okay, you know, this was, but minute to minute, and actually the avocados one is a great example. There was a, there was a whole, you know, a really good piece in Vox where they showed that basically every food that we know of has been shown to both cure and cause cancer. <laughs> and, and, you know, each of the dot, they, they had all these studies lined up where they, you know, they basically showed like chocolate, red meat, wine, like, the, you know, you can find a study that, you know, puts it anywhere on the continuum. But every time one of those studies gets released, it's tagged as important, right? So it's like, boom, important this way, boom, yeah. important the other way. 
So yeah, I do think that, uh, that the subjective side of importance, the way that things are being tagged, packaged, inflated, and presented to us, uh, I think that has changed. Absolutely. How much do you recommend, you know, these athletes, executives that you're working with, do you encourage them to cut all of that out or just kind of be able to filter it in a way that is not um, immediate or personal? It really depends on the person is, is the honest answer. There, there are some people who, you know, the, the, the thing that they need to be at their best is absolute focus and, and, you know, no distractions. So one, you know, wonderful athlete, a woman named Martha McCabe is a two-time Olympic swimmer. She talks about in the lead up to, to the London games in 2012, you know, she started to get a bunch of messages from friends and family stuff on social media. And she literally got a burner phone with a new SIM card, gave the number to like six people. And that was it. Like, she's like, I don't want to have to deal with that stuff. Um, I I know other people who, you know, and and actually typically athletes that are a little later in their career um, and, 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 you know, have kind of, I guess, acclimated. It's like climbing a mountain, right? You do sort of altitude acclimation. Uh, They actually like it as a bit of a distraction from the pressure that accompanies the anticipation of performance. And Mm. so they want to have the opportunity to connect with people. And so, you know, so I think a big part of it is just awareness. Honestly, it's it's that ability to tune in for yourself and go, okay, is this hurting my performance or helping my performance? Is this hurting my well-being or helping my well-being? And, 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 you know, attacking it with a sense of, of free will, as opposed to just defaulting to, you know, whatever the settings were when I installed this thing. And, you know, right. it, you know, so I, I think it's more about imbuing it with a sense of intentionality than it is any one, you know, one kind of right answer. Well, the, the, the swimmer, you know, the swimmer recognized it and applied um, a rule to it. Right. Yep. And, and, you know, it made the decision and ran with it. So, because, like, I think of the question that, or the statement Benj made that, you know, when I look at, like, especially younger, you know, they, 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 they seem to have more coping issues. Mm-hmm. And when you have coping issues and then you apply pressure, it just, the outcome is, is, can be disastrous. So yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of both sides of this coin. You know, what are the attributes of, that we need to get really good at to handle pressure or the opposite of the side of the coin. What are the traps? Like, like answer, you know, your phone's out to the world and I'm preparing for an Olympic event. Like I really yeah. want to do. So, totally. Well, yeah. and that to me, like, I think in what, what I, what I hear and what you're saying a little bit and what I really took from Martha's stories, like, you know, we talked about principles instead of decisions there's a bit of a corollary to that, which is structure over willpower. Um, you know, because yeah. I think, you know, willing yourself to not get distracted by that stuff, just like, oh, I'm going to keep the phone in my pocket. I'm not going to listen. You know, when it buzzes, I'm not going to check it. Like, that is such a losing game. Uh, willpower doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it's just not possible. You, you know, you're fighting in a tug of war against, you know, the best paid people on the planet who are doing the latest, you know, research into neuroscience specifically to figure out how to overwhelm your willpower. So I think that 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 notion of you cannot will yourself out of out of volume, out of distractions, you have to put some structure in place, whether that's getting rid of your phone, it's, you know, establishing periods during the day where you're going to turn the Wi-Fi off and just stay focused. Like, so I do think that discipline of figuring out what's a structure that works for you that doesn't rely on willpower. Uh, I, I think that's a really important part of, of managing it for sure. Dane, give, um, 
tell our listeners where they can find you and your book. And then I want to ask you one more question to, to wrap us up here. Yeah. So you can find me at danejensen.com. Um, that, that has links to everywhere the book's sold, but you know, you can find the book uh, pretty much anywhere, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all the places you would find it. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn at Dane Jensen on Twitter at Dane Jensen. Uh, and those are the, the best places to, to kind of get me. All right. Here's the money ball question. You're talking to a group of leaders right this minute. We've talked about importance, uncertainty, volume, but like, what is, if, if we left this conversation and only did one thing that made us perform better in the face of pressure, pressure or reduce the pressure that we have, what is the single greatest thing that we can go do right now? You know, the single greatest thing is how we look at the pressure in the first place. Um, you know, I talked about this notion that pressure is a double-edged sword, that, that each of these things are double agents. Um, and that means that we get to decide how we look at it. And I, I really do think that for a lot of people, pressure is this kind of, you know, evil, necessary byproduct that I got to just kind of try to live with or deal with, you know, but it's like this nasty thing that I got to like minimize, but it's kind of there. Um, I actually, you know, after all of my conversations, I think pressure is essential. It is an essential input into a meaningful life, into a high performing life. You don't get performance without pressure because pressure is inherent in the human journey of growth and development. If I'm going to do things I haven't done before, I'm going to experience pressure. And, and in fact, when I talk to people about their highest pressure moments, almost uniformly, they said, you know, it was actually the energy under that pressure you know, yeah, things were going crazy. You know, my stomach was, but, but it was the energy under that, that that gave me the capacity to do what I needed to do, right? To step up and, and perform, to step up and lead. And so I think, you know, Carl Jung said 100 years ago, what we resist persists. And I think when we try to push pressure away, it actually just magnifies it. It magnifies the yeah. impact of it. And so, you know, if I ask people to take one thing away, it's like, you got to recognize that pressure is here. It's inevitable. It's essential. And I got to open myself up to it and go, there's energy under there. How do I want to relate to this in a way that's productive? And that's where you start to turn to the more specific tools that we talked about. But I think that mindset shift is where everything has to start. Yes. What I'm, what I'm hearing, Dane, what I'm hearing from you is embrace the suck. <laughs> right? It's, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I do think you're onto something, right? It's, yeah. it's. I think people sometimes think I'm going to be the like, yeah, love it. Like love the pressure, rise and grind. And I, you know, I, I actually do. I think it's very tough to get to a place where pressure is actually enjoyable, but you can get to a place where pressure is meaningful. It is helpful. Uh, it is fuel. That is possible. That is achievable. Uh, and I think, you know, it's like most people don't want to repeat their highest pressure moments. But when they look back on them, they go, those were really important periods right. for me to go. Yeah, through. you got to accept the fact that it's there and it's not going to go away. It's just like our relationship with fear or money. Yeah. You, you got like you got to understand it, compartmentalize it, and then use it to your advantage as opposed to your disadvantage. Totally. 100% so, agree. Thanks, Dane. Yeah, Dane, was- loved this conversation. Super energizing. I live in this stuff. So super fun. Um, can't wait to grab that book and, and yeah. dig in some more. So awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah.